think the mountains are just trying to kill us the whole time we're here. <laughs> like, how, how are we trying to, you know, avoid these dangers? But there's popular climbing routes there where it'll be a sidearm of the glacier and they call it the Valley of Death because the overhead hazard from Srax is so severe and nobody has a good idea of when those are going to rip off. I mean, you get a general idea of when they become more or less active, but, you know, large climbing teams just disappearing in a powder cloud of, um, you know, broken hanging glacier. So, yeah, and, and it was a tradition for the guiding, you know, Alaska Mountaineering School. We would walk... Um, back from the airport after an expedition and stopped by the graveyard, which is right next to the airport. And there's a climber's memorial there. And we would just uh, stand in front of this climbing memorial. You'd see a list of names. Um, some years the list is bigger than others and you kind of just hang your head in silence and um, just appreciate and say thanks for safe return from the mountains. This is Melis Cody. You're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Brooke Shiny Edwards. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by Vissen Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Well, happy spring, everyone! Though some of you lower 48ers are going to be skiing until the cows come home in August, like in the eastern Sierra. Wow, what a mind-blowing winter you all had down there with record totals at Alta, a season that never stopped delivering powder to Jackson, and the world's most relentless shoveling exercise in California. (laughs) Wherever this winter found you, in your pursuit of powder, I hope it was a safe one. For us in Alaska, we skirted around some deep persistent slab issues that kept our reins on for most of the winter, as we gratefully watched members of our community come out unscathed from some scary near misses. We learned a lot, watched the snow reports from down south with MB, and tabled our bigger objective dreams for another year. For myself and Melis Cody, we turned our focus to avalanche education and were rewarded with the experience of a lifetime as we got to join forces with the Alaska Surf Guides and their two expedition boats, the Milo and the Aleutia, to create the first ever Alaskan Sea and Ski Rec 1 and Rec 2 for a lucky nine students on a boat-based expedition in Kenai Fjords National Park. Between route finding and alder bashing, we never had time to do this interview on the boat, but we did manage to carve out some time for a fantastic conversation in between seasons immediately following our trip. Melis Cody just finished her seventh season as executive director of the Alaska Avalanche School. It was the busiest winter in the school's 47-year history, reaching 1,100 students in 67 courses across a vast and austere geography. Melis's ascent into her role directing one of Alaska's most beloved nonprofits, came after two decades working variously as a mountaineering instructor, climbing guide, climbing ranger, and wilderness medicine instructor. Based in Talkeetna, Alaska since the late 1990s, Melis cut her teeth in the snow and avalanche world on expeditions in the Alaska range. She worked as a climbing instructor for Knowles, an Alaska mountaineering school, 
eventually becoming a high-altitude mountaineering guide with numerous ascents on Denali, Foraker, and many numbered peaks. Her experience as an Arctic guide also gave her the opportunity to work for Antarctic Logistics and expeditions at the South Pole and on, and on Mount Vinton. She worked four summers as a climbing ranger in Denali National Park, educating climbers, protecting natural resources, and performing as a member of a technical rescue team. Personal climbing expeditions have taken Melis to Asia, Europe, and South America. In this episode, Melis and I discuss what makes Alaska such a special and effective classroom for avalanche classes. We also reflect on lessons delivered during our recent boat course and discuss using the expedition format to teach a formal avalanche education. What follows is an illuminating dive into the world of avalanche education, mountains, and Alaska through the lens of one of its leading ladies. Without further ado, I give you Melis Cody. Well, hi, Melis. Thank you. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time um, after such a busy season for you to just sit down and have a conversation. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Brooke. Uh, it, this is a good season to cross the finish line on. Yeah, no kidding. Um, yeah, so why don't we start where we always start is just where your fascination for snow and all things avalanche came from. Where did it all begin? Uh, I It's interesting. I started glissading before skiing. So I think of myself as a climber first. And as you're beginning to mountaineer, especially without many uh, skills, sometimes it can be the easiest way up is snow. Uh, so I, I took some climbing classes uh, in my, what, teen years. And my first kind of major ascent was with Exum Guides on the Grand Teton. And it was in the beginning of July, but it had snowed a lot. And so they took me and a handful of other 15-year-olds uh, up the peak and strapped crampons on our feet and put ice axes in our hands, and we got to glissade down the mountain. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, this is, this is so fun. This is definitely the way I want to explore the hills. And so I spent um, kind of the rest of my teenage years and early 20s um, learning to travel on glaciers and on snow and climb peaks. And it wasn't really until college that I tried to ski and backcountry ski um, with an outing club. And there was some misery there involved because my first backcountry ski tour was with a pair of rented, you know, skis and equipment from the outing club. And we had those like rubber snake skins and they weren't holding for anything. And then a partner tried to, when they saw me fall, falling so far behind, tried to put clister on my skis and then the snow temperature changed. And I just wasn't with my group the entire trip, but I still had fun on snow, but it took a while before I got my systems and my gear together. <laughs> I love it that you talk about, um, I mean, you are such a mountaineer, right? It's like you talk about uh, the, you know, mountaineering being fun with the glissading on ice X and that backcountry skiing was the struggle struggle when most other people like the eye opening for them about mountaineering is that it's just a long slog. So I love that you're kind of reverse. So I, I feel like before getting to like more of the, uh, your present role, like let's explore a little bit more your career as a mountaineer. Cause you really have had quite an extensive 
career as a mountaineer, starting from that glissading as a teenager. Um, so where has mountaineering taken you around the world? Where did that passion lead you? Yeah, I got a scholarship in college to come up to Alaska and take a mountaineering course in the Alaska range with Alaska Mountaineering School. And the founders, Colby Coombs and Caitlin Palmer, were my instructors. So the school was quite small then. And we flew into uh, little Switzerland and I was on snowshoes then. But we basically learned how to you know, avoid falling into crevasses and how to support our tents with wind walls and sawing blocks. And we did some avalanche awareness on that course. I would say pretty minimal amount. Um, but that's kind of where I first understood about the danger of avalanches because Colby had been swept off Mount Foraker a few years before with his climbing partners and was the sole survivor from an avalanche. It's a quite stunning story. Um, and we saw avalanches every day, as you would in the Alaska Range, because everything's constantly eroding. Um, lots of serac fall, but also like a lot of proper snow avalanches. And so it was just kind of the daily drum listening to them. And I would say that was kind of my first experience in and around avalanches and then kind of cutting my teeth into that more uh, serious uh, alpinism and, and mountaineering. At the end of that trip, you know, they recommended that I try to climb Denali with friends. And I thought, oh my gosh, no, I would never be able to do anything like that. That's too involved, too advanced. I don't know anything about high altitude climbing. And um, sure enough, I chipped away at my skills and building experience with friends and, and um, made an attempt and then a career out of climbing Denali for the next couple of decades as a high altitude mountaineering guide. And then eventually helping with the National Park Service effort of keeping the mountain clean and safe as a climbing ranger on Denali. So I've spent most of my career, I would say, climbing and playing on snow in Alaska, but I've had some fun trips to other parts of the world, climbing in uh, Kyrgyzstan, both snow couloirs and rock uh, faces. I did a ski mountaineering expedition in Kamchatka in the early 2000s where uh, all my friends were heli skiers and I had my first Dina fit set up um, and yeah I I mostly love uh, climbing uh, and kind of steep snow climbing I would say those are kind of my entry points to the mountains Wow, that's incredible. I guess I'd never heard about your Kamchatka expedition as well, uh, right across the street from us over in <laughs> Russia. How did it compare? Are you like climbing volcanoes over there? Or what was that like comparatively to Denali's so much its own creature, right? So when you go to travel and climb in other parts of the world, are you really basing all of your strength and experience from that high altitude environment of Denali and do other places seem just easy in comparison or how does, how does it differ? Well, uh, culturally, especially at that time in the late 2000s, it was like not that easy to, to travel in Russia, like as a tourist. I mean, we'd hear st stories of, 
other adventurers being thrown in jail because they had a GPS unit. And there's a lot of military assets, uh, I think, on the Kamchatka Peninsula. And they just, not a lot of interest in having Americans travel there. But we made connections with um, a mountaineering club there and a ski club there. and But we had a hard time getting maps really hard time understanding the weather. We would get weather advisories, but the wind would be in meters per second, which really messed with our minds. <laughs> you like don't really know anything about the snow conditions. So you're basically, it was a total uh, adventure. And it was me and three other women who are all really talented skiers. Uh, so I was probably the weak link, which is, you know, where my not teleskiing probably helped me because I snowplowed the crap out of some of those volcanoes, <laughs> but I had a really good time. You're probably great um, from your mountaineering background of like, you're really good at the up and then the down was survival, right? Yeah. Thank God for strong legs because, um, well, it's not like it was powder skiing anyway. So I would say, you know, even though they're on teleskiing, they were alpine turning on teleskis because it was very wind affected. It was April. It was a very like firm kind of corn um, skiing snowpack. And then, yeah, we were running long days. So we were actually slogging in the mush quite a bit too. <laughs> and good old parallel marking that gets you through some good survival. <laughs> <laughs> I know it all too well. <laughs> um and then, like, it's so crazy that you were up there with Kobe and Caitlin um, in the early days in your 20s. And then did you, do you think that seed was planted that I like, oh, someday I'm going to be a climbing ranger? Or what, what kind of shaped your trajectory towards pursuing that career? Because that was pretty unique. Yeah, I, I guess I would have, I would have thought I would have started with the park service before um, becoming a climbing guide, but sometimes it's just, you know, when those opportunities emerge and there was very little turnover in the ranger staff for kind of my first decade living in Alaska. And then I quite enjoyed the freedom of guiding and like selecting assignments or not selecting assignments um, and the ability to kind of travel in expedition still uh, without kind of having a more full-time job. So ultimately I got addicted to the flexibility of a guiding schedule. And then kind of later my career returned to the more, uh, what would you say, structured regime of working for the federal government in the mountains. It's quite different. And then I, I mean, just all the skills that you had to have, because now you also teach woofers and things like that. So did you, which came first, chicken or the egg? Did you start embracing wilderness medicine or what led to that passion? Because that was a huge part of being a ranger as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I uh, I love uh, helping people. I like making decisions when things go wrong. And so being part of a search and rescue team, you know, was something I always wanted to do. So I actually started as a volunteer in Talkeetna, Alaska. It's a couple miles, I mean, uh, hours north of Anchorage, a town of about a thousand people, and they had a volunteer ambulance and fire department. And so I got my EMT and started um, helping with the ambulance service and helping with the fire department there to 
kind of engage with the community, gain skills, and also fill time until I could get a resume strong enough to get a job in the mountains. So it was incredibly hard for me to get my foot in the door as as a mountaineering instructor and guide. I had climbed Denali twice, Mount Forker once, spent hundreds of days on glaciers, which uh, can add up really quickly uh, when I was working as a Knowles instructor, uh, where, you know, you, the expeditions are all about 30 days long. And so I, those were my building years, kind of trying to get the resume that would allow people to take on that amount of responsibility, taking groups into, you know, very consequential terrain. Right. And then, uh, I imagine that during your guiding career that you saw some incidences or things that um, maybe you saw the rangers respond to that, that kind of piqued your interest in, in that way of like, oh, I, I could see myself being that helper, assisting in that rescue, or were you just even as a guide called to rescue other guides or other individuals up there that were just independent without non-guided parties that were having some kind of incident that you had to help out on? Yeah, I, uh, all of the above. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the Alaska range is pretty colorful that way. Um, there's a lot of people getting into trouble, which is why the government dedicates so many resources to supporting the, visitor program there for specifically for mountaineering. Uh, but when, I, yeah, I guess before I even positioned guiding, I was invited on a 30 day MPS patrol, or they call it a 14 K patrol, but that, I mean, it's great if you can go all the way up the mountain. And we did the first time I summited Denali, I was actually volunteering for the national park service and I was only 24. And uh, I, my team was really experienced and highly skilled. There were some uh, pararescue men from the military in the Air Force and, you know, a very senior climbing ranger and, you know, this very talented skier. And so I, I felt like I had a lot to prove. I just had enthusiasm and brute strength at that point. And so that was a steep learning curve for me and not only becoming like a good steward of the mountains and trying to make sure that climbers had very little impact on popular routes, but also it was exciting for me to treat altitude illness and frostbite and um, see people transported that were injured. um, And in some cases, people that had had like a fatal accident. Yeah, that's super intense. And especially from your beginnings of even hearing Colby Coombs describe the avalanche that swept him off and and unfortunately took his partner. So you always knew that one of the side effects, I guess, of, of entering a lifestyle and indeed a career with the mountains that it would also come with loss as the mountains mm both yeah. give and take away, right? Yeah, I I think for the Alaska range in particular, you have this feeling like, I think the mountains are just trying to kill us the whole time we're here. <laughs> like, how, yeah. how are we trying to, you know, avoid these dangers? But there's popular climbing routes there where it'll be a side arm of the glacier and they call it the valley of death because 
the overhead hazard from Cerax is so severe and nobody has a good idea of when those are going to rip off. I mean, you get a general idea of when they become more or less active, but, you know, large climbing teams just disappearing in a powder cloud of, um, you know, broken hanging glacier. So, yeah, and, and it was a tradition for the guiding, you know, Alaska Mountaineering School. We would walk... Um, back from the airport after an expedition and stopped by the graveyard, which is right next to the airport. And there's a climber's memorial there. And we would just uh, stand in front of this climbing memorial. You'd see a list of names. Um, Some years, the list is bigger than others. And you kind of just hang your head in silence and um, just appreciate and say thanks for safe return from the mountains. So that mm. idea of like death and not returning has always been part of the reputation of the Alaska range. But, you know, with good climber education and a lot of resources, I think, I mean, we've seen a huge Im- improvement um, in terms of, um, you know, less, much less fatalities than we used to see, which I would play in some part to just teams used to have no access to weather forecasts and they would get trapped in these biblical storms. Um, And so having access to good forecasting helps, but the Denali National Park is putting tremendous number of resources into uh, their climber education program. They have like detailed booklets, well, I guess it's all online now, but translated into numerous languages, mm-hmm. letting climbers know about hazards and how to avoid them. Um, for some of the popular climbs, you're required to physically check in to get your permit and um, spend time with a climbing ranger discussing the routes, current conditions, pros and cons. So they, I mean, they've done so much um, and I think it's had a really positive impact. Right, right. We've definitely seen the trajectory of technology and education um, really change the way we adventure in the mountains. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the the Climbers Memorial. It is a place I always stop by every time I'm passing through Talkeetna as well. And it's a beautiful reminder um, of those lives that were lost. And indeed, like some some piece of it is also like why we choose to go to the mountains too, right? It, it's it's like it makes us feel more alive and, and definitely feels humble, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in, in that mountaineering respect, a lot of the avalanches that you were seeing are Ciroc's, you know, like the Ciroc fall is like um, constantly happening up there. You see a lot of loose avalanches. But at what point did that like, you know, your backcountry ski, ski mountaineering, intersect, fascination with avalanches, like how did you make the transition or the trajectory in your career from climbing ranger on Denali, this like high adrenaline, high adventure lifestyle to, you know, starting to be more of the educator through the woofers or maybe those, those overlapped a little bit. And then where did that take you in terms of your fascination for avalanches? Uh, yeah, I would say that a couple of things led me more towards education. One is, you know, I'm not a I'm not a huge person. I'm I think for my size, like a bit of an outlier for my ability to carry huge loads up big mountains and and still have enough energy and peripheral vision to make 
you know, pretty good decision strategically about conditions and when to go or not go. But uh, I never felt like I could do that year round. Like as a high altitude mountaineering guide, people would just, uh, a lot of people I worked with would be on a circuit. And it's like, oh, okay, Denali in the spring, maybe Everest in the fall, Aconcagua in the winter, you could sprinkle in like any of the high peaks or the summits, like um, Mount Vincent or Elbrus, and they you could go on this like year round high mountain circuit. But I always felt like when I finished a, a Denali expedition, I would lose like a hearty percentage of my body weight um, just through the energy of carrying that much equipment um, and being in you know very cold conditions. It's it's a lot of energy in, and you can't you can't really eat your way out of that situation. That the the demand of that climb um and you don't have you don't have that to lose I mean and it's it's amazing to me because like so many of our friends who are some of the best mountaineers on Denali are petite females like really petite and just all rock muscle and I'm like where's the where are you losing this weight it's like the you're carrying three times your body weight and (laughs) it seems like up the mountain and uh it just seems like it takes a toll yeah some of it's just like severe dehydration (laughs) you can you can actually get quite a bit back after two days of like drinking water but what yeah once I went to the the dentist like within 48 hours of you know, summiting Denali, and they never had to use that suction thing in my mouth to get the saliva out of the way. And they wanted to prescribe me medication for making saliva. And I'm like, I think I'll be good in a couple days. <laughs> oh my <laughs> just God. Like, yeah. But anyway, um, so for me, no, I couldn't, I just knew physically I wasn't going to last very long in that sport if I started doing it year round. Like, I needed a massive recovery period after doing you know, in some cases, like multiple Denali expeditions in the same summer. So um, teaching wilderness medicine classes and teaching other things in the winter, instead of traveling around the world, guiding you around, um, actually, I think kept me and my joints and my back like quite healthy. Um, But, you know, specific to avalanches, I feel like, you know, getting an avalanche education and taking precautions and carrying safety equipment has been a really hard sell for climbers. And you're still seeing climbers dying in groups on avalanche terrain. They don't have any transceivers. Um, Often, you know, I I still to this day when I'm packing for a trip, I look at my lightweight alpine shovel (laughs) and I look at my like real snow mover that I'm like, okay, what would I want? somebody else to dig me out of avalanche debris with but man this other shovel's so much lighter and I know my snow pit <laughs> won't be as nice but I could probably make it work yeah. and um that idea of like how much weight is on your back and for how long is a very very real consideration um don't get me wrong but for a long time I don't feel like anybody demanded out of me for my career that I have advanced avalanche training and a lot of times on our group equipment list, we wouldn't have basic avalanche safety equipment. And so I think we're still overcoming that to some extent. And so a goal 
for me, especially in Alaska, you'll see quite a few of the fatalities every year are climbers and our mm -hmm. climbers in the Alaska range specifically. So mm -hmm. that's not why I'm executive director of Alaska Avalanche School, <laughs> but it is a driver and it's a component um, of why I've chosen to be involved in like sculpting a po program whose whole goal is to extend the reach of avalanche education to motorized users, to climbers, to other people that aren't just the, the classic um, backcountry skier group, whether it's dog mushers or um, fat bike riders, um, cross country skiers. There's a lot of people in Alaska and avalanche training. Quite a few don't even know they're in it. Dog walkers. Right, right. And um, in fact, we had a year, uh, maybe it was like three years ago, where all the avalanche incidences were in town. They were the cross-country yeah. Nordic team just at the park and on a wind slab, remember? And then there yes. was the hiker up on flat top and, and a wind slab broke above him and uh, or it was a persistent slab, but he was just like upside down wiggling his feet and another hiker walked by and luckily pulled him <laughs> out. But like all of those ended without incident, but literally there was three that were in town, which were fascinating. But but I'm glad you brought up that your your current role as executive director of Alaska Avalanche School because I really want to talk to you about that. And um, the Alaska Avalanche School has a really unique history in its formation. Can you kind of start at um, how it started and, and a little bit of the history before you get to where you're at now and where the school is headed? Yeah, Alaska Avalanche School started in the late 70s by... Um, Doug Fessler and Jill Fredston, and they, um, uh, let's see, uh, <laughs> they, they were doing some um, formal forecasting for South Central Alaska, specifically kind of Anchorage Bowl area, but they were also uh, responding to a lot of, you know, avalanche accidents as part of you know, search and rescue efforts. And in there, um, I think they discovered that there was a real need for public avalanche programs. So they founded Alaska Avalanche School and they ran programs for, you know, decades, uh, mostly out of uh, Hatcher Pass. And that's an area where there's state park land, but also some old historic mining buildings. And um, through funding from the state at that point, they were allowed to use some of the infrastructure. And so they would um, sleep on the floor of these museums in the winter with students and lecture and give them handouts and travel into avalanche terrain. Um, they eventually, um, well, Jill anyway, published her works in kind of a seminal book, Snow Sense, that really made some of the major concepts of avalanche education accessible to people without a very strong science background to recreationalists, because there was a huge gap between what professionals knew and could do and what recreationalists could do and what they had access to. So um, then from there, two of their senior instructors uh, took over the organization, formed it as a 501 C3 um, separate from 
um, kind of the structure the organization had before, and they carried the torch. And so the organization has lot, largely had the same structure and shape for, you know, over 45 years. But now. has grown so much, right? Like, I remember that was, that was my first level one as I bought a plane ticket up to Alaska. And I, I borrowed a friend's truck and I drove to Hatcher Pass and I put on a headlamp and skinned in by night to the Independence Mine and and crawled into a sleeping bag next to all these other snoring students and, and woke up to uh, Jill and Nancy Pfeiffer. And, um, and I remember that first day, my mind just being blown, like looking out the door at all the mountains for one. But then we went out and we tried to create avalanches. And I remember being like, what are we doing? I thought I was supposed to learn how to avoid them. And we're doing like, <laughs> we're doing like the link arms, like butt bounce on the slope. And Jill really <laughs> wanted it to go. And she's just like, keep going. And I was like, I don't want to make an avalanche happen. <laughs> oh, it was a great uh, early, early years of avalanche education. But the school has come long and far, even though now it's, it's still is a nonprofit. And how many years have you been an executive director for Alaska Avalanche School? I just finished my seventh season. So the board took a risk on me in 2016 um, because I largely had a field background. And although I had done some administrative roles at some organization, they were not hiring somebody that had already proven themselves as an executive director. Yeah. But to my credit, I took a risk on Alaska Avalanche School because it was a bit of a fixer upper when I showed up. It had suffered some injuries from uh turnover in the administrative staff. It was in financial arrears. They um there was 15 instructors at the school at the time. Um I guess the season before I joined, they had taught 24 avalanche courses to a little under 400 students, which which is still notable and fabulous. But if you now compare that today um, where the school has, you know, quite a bit of financial security. We have reserves. So if we had a, one or two terrible avalanche seasons, the organization could ride it out. Um, we had um, 50 instructors last year. And granted, some wow. are still in training. But that is, you know, 50 people on payroll and taught. Uh, I counted a little differently than somebody else. But anyway, between 67 <laughs> and 70 courses to 1,100 students. So Holy cow. It, it's it's more than doubled in size and you know those those numbers aren't interesting just in themselves but what has happened in that time is we were a major player in supporting the American Avalanche Association with the Pro Rec split we've expanded our own recreational programming to have um an avalanche fundamentals class that can really meet an audience at a good price point and length of time with some basic avalanche education without committing to a three-day level one course and you know more standalone rescue courses we're covering much more of alaska's geography than we had in the past so it's um really nice to have the organization now be so inclusive by having so many people with different um snow sports, the way they interact with avalanche terrain, having an expanded motorized avalanche education 
program, um, teaching in places that not really requiring everybody to always travel to Anchorage for an avalanche education, but delivering an education to Sitka and Ketchikan and Kodiak and Nome. Um, so reaching all those geographies, you know, isn't really captured in the number because that's, it's actually like three times, four times as much work to offer avalanche courses in some of these areas than it would be just to offer a few more in Anchorage each year. Well, and I can speak to like the relevance and importance of, of teaching to those smaller communities. It seems like one thing that I've really loved in being an instructor at the Avalanche schools is teaching, say, in Nome. And you're all of a sudden looking at your students who show up to the course and and you're not teaching to your average backcountry skier. Everyone's like, there's mountains in Nome. And it's like, yeah, there's actually mountains in Nome. And there's also people using the landscape to um, check on their mine or go dog mushing or um, hunt or... Um, you know, just travel through the mountains in a different way. And so I, I think that that is what's really cool about how you've expanded the school to reach out to these smaller communities, because it's also f- like forced us as instructors to be really creative and think beyond the box of just strapping skis or snowboard or even a snow machine onto our bodies and moving through the landscape. It's like, having to interact with the students in the audience and think about like, okay, well, these are people who actually live in the landscape and move in the landscape uh, uh, for subsistence needs. And, and what does that look like? You know, how do we think about that avalanches can occur on cut banks uh, moving through rivers or things like that? So um, I really love that you have um, really been an advocate of expanding the Alaska Avalanche School mission to reach those smaller communities. And then um, if you can speak to like how you've helped to like mentor and coach kind of the instructor staff to tailor and be creative with that overarching curriculum that's under the American Avalanche Association, you know, stamp of approval is like what makes Alaska Avalanche School different in that curriculum base? Yeah, I would say, I would flip the coin on that. And I would say Alaska Avalanche School instructors have always mentored me. It uh, We have um, staff that, um, well, one staff member in particular has been teaching, you know, for the school since the 80s. But just the longevity of our instructor staff is a huge part of our strength. I always feel like our school is like from by for the instructors. And so we have these really engaging staff meetings a couple of times a year where we deliberate curriculum, we brainstorm about how to make things better. And I always feel like I'm just a facilitator because I think the community of our instructors has such a strong vision. And what I try to balance is, um, you know, we want instructors to be really well compensated and supported, but you get these assignments and that demand a lot of an instructor's free time to make it happen because it's hard to make the shoe fit <laughs> all the way across the state. And so I know with some of these um, other assignments that um, instructors are, are really putting in a lot of extra work to um, research, you know, how how to make our instruction fit locally in these other areas. And so um, hopefully over time we can 
capture enough of that and it lightens the load for people down the line. But anytime you try something new, it's pretty easy to underestimate the challenges and the amount of work that's going to be involved. (laughs) Right, right. Well, speaking of which, I do want to, I feel like uh, it would be negligent to, for us to not talk about the exciting collaboration that we just got to partake in, because to me, that was the most unique avalanche course I've ever gotten to teach. And I got to do it with you and um, with Caleb. And so do you want to talk a little bit about what we just co-created? Yeah, uh, it's definitely been one of the highlights of my time at Alaska Avalanche School is we just recently came back from a six-day boat-based expedition type avalanche course. So we have these two former large old fishing vessels that have been converted into these adventure machines, normally for surfers and stand-up paddle boarders. But um, we've experimented with layering avalanche education over kind of the sea-to-ski expedition where uh, you and your instructors and your boat captains get together in the morning and you look at the weather and you look at the terrain and you pick a slope and what your goals are for the day and, and then you go for it. And so I would say like when you talk about what's unique about Alaska Avalanche School, I would say, you know, there's the real obvious stuff, which is, whoa, our days are super short in the winter. <laughs> you really only have from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. to have meaningful daylight um, for several months in the winter to teach uh, extremely cold temperatures. But I think one of the dominant factors, and this will be true for a very long time, is that our students travel quite often into unforecast terrain or sporadically forecast terrain. There's only one um, strip of road access skiing and motorized running that really benefits from daily observations and forecasting and we've got this enormous geography with a lot of really fun uh mountainous avalanche terrain to explore and so our curriculum is always i'd say not that i've taken a lot of avalanche courses from other providers but my impression is that it's pretty science heavy that way because we're basically uh, have the understanding that we have level one students that are going to be taking our skills in the unforecast avalanche terrain. And so you can't really anchor your curriculum to get the forecast, read the forecast, understand it. Although that's part of what we want to do. That needs to be part of their vocabulary and their understanding. Um, They need to know how to layer, you know, the obvious red flags over data that they collect when they're touring. And so um, I think that that trip we just did was um, kind of high, highlighted that to its most extreme because <laughs> you're also yeah, taking totally. into account like tides and currents <laughs> and swell um, and, you know, glaciated terrain, which normally our courses don't spend that much time around. So <clears throat> and route finding from the beach when you've scouted it from the boat. I felt like that was right. like huge, huge learning for students and instructors. <laughs> <laughs> but there's many regions in the state where uh, our students do take a water taxi to access their ski train. So we do that on our Homer course. Um, it's quite possible we could do that to some extent more in other parts of the state. So that's a really valuable skill, but I think it plays to the school's strength and its roots, which is 
is our instructors used to sleep on the floor with our students, like pretty much right up until when COVID um, hit. And that more immersive experience with your instructors is great for building learning, building community, um, and really getting the full sense of the type of decisions that get made that lead to a successful or unsuccessful day in the mountains. And I think one of the big lessons for me, Brooke, on that trip that we just did together is you said that um, you noticed your students became more aware and attuned to human factors than maybe on a normal course because they got to see you and I make very differing decisions or I would try to coax you into train you didn't feel comfortable or vice versa like we just weren't always on the same page and they thought oh we never expected our instructors like wouldn't agree or kind of have these same same issues but when you're with somebody that amount of the time you get a sense of their personality you can read their body language I mean those are the kinds of things that are real deal playing into your human factor decisions that are leading to you know, sometimes good and bad outcomes. So yeah, I thought it was exciting. I thought that was great because it also um, took the expert hails off of you and I and saw us as humans who also struggle with um, all the human factors and the interplay of of decision making that happens. And, um, And I was just fascinated with the way that um, the students became such a team in that and really included me in that where I felt like I was, I was just a part of the team. I was, it wasn't top down education. It was like, okay, we're figuring this out together. Like I was like, I don't have any beta. I don't, I've never been out here either. I don't know the routes. Nobody's been out here this season. I don't know what the snow is. Like we woke up every day and looked at the weather. And, and so that, that tightness that, that comes from expedition living, like you mentioned is like, um, when they could witness you and I just being human in our own interplay and interactions, like leading two different groups, it broke down that like, oh, okay, like Brooke and Malice are, are just humans with faults as well. And they don't always agree. It's not like there's one answer in how to do this right. And uh, I think that that was just invaluable as an outcome for them and for us as, as lifelong learners, right? That part of why we teach is to learn ourselves <laughs> all the time. And I, I came away from that course having a, just an abundance of learning and feeling very like proud of um, the product that we get to create together at the Avalanche School and the freedom that we get to do that. So it was really cool. And um, particularly from a recreational um, avalanche education standpoint, I feel like it's been a hard sell maybe across America to get students wanting to sign up for that rec two is like once it stopped being just the one, two, three levels, it's once we did the rec pro split, I felt like we really saw a downfall in the rec two signups because students didn't really know what they were going to get. And yet on that course, I was like, oh, this, this is really what Alaskan at least rec two and maybe all rec two students would really want is that kind of mentoring and coaching and how to produce their own forecasts in a way, produce their own recreational forecast, build their own train progression and be able to look outside at the weather and read the red flags and, and read the snowpack under their feet and, and be making decisions that are ever evolving in front of them. It was pretty cool to witness and be a part of. 
Yeah, I was very impressed with that level two course you just taught and joining you all on your last field day to see how well everybody was communicating and the decision points they're making in the train and the conversations and the vocabulary that were leading to all the really good decisions that ended up turning into some really fun turns too, uh, was so impressive and so much more powerful than just memorizing another acronym or seeing another PowerPoint, um, which, you know, it needs to be the framework for which you engage in that train. So it was such a good balance. Yeah. And you mentioned that those that were really science heavy on those, but it, it's cool that the highlight came out like human factor and decision making, which is also a science, right? And so yeah. it's it seems like to me, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, is like, that that really has been a shift in avalanche education over the years as as we realize that snow doesn't kill people, we kill people like our brains. Um, I mean, what have you seen in the evolution of avalanche education? Like, what are the big changes that you have seen over the years and where do you see it going? Well, I you, you see things just kind of like awful tape. Like, we're always trying to find our sweet spot. I would say big big picture, there's been kind of a push and pull between fear mongering, like you need to learn this or you're going to die. Or, you know, uh, yeah, just using fear as a tool to instill useful lessons versus like empowering folks, um, knowing that fatal avalanche accidents, although impactful, are quite rare given the user base and on any given day you're probably not going to die of an avalanche in the mountains and so there's there's something in between those two things um so i i would say you know in the time that i've been involved um i'd also say what i've seen is you know a difference in inclusivity where you know avalanche courses are just for backcountry skiers. And it's really hard to shake that in the language and the photos that you see in textbooks, that the videos that are produced online and the examples our instructors give to students, you know, it's really hard to put in other types of language and examples um, so that somebody doesn't feel the frustration of being like, well, I'm actually a sledder, but this was the only course I could take. So I'm going to bumble through my level one on snowshoes, but nobody's talking to me. Nobody's talking about how I'm going to experience this terrain. Uh, like how would I experience a warmth or settlement on a snowmobile, snow machine? Um, what kind of traveling tests would look like for me? as a motorized user and and so forth. So I think that's still starting to shed. And I know I'm working hard to improve our our library of photos and things to include so that um, we can engage our, our students better. Um, and then you know, I would say most recently COVID was, you know, I call it a shakeup. One of our senior instructors, Frederick, calls it like catastrophic earthquake to avalanche <laughs> curriculum but seeing what ha happens in terms of that blend of like online learning pre-course leading learning how many days is a course how much is in the field are you in ski are you in ski resort boundaries are you in forecast train you unforced forecast train is our a3 curriculum um bullet points kind of broad enough that accommodates multiple methods of teaching in days or are some of these level ones just so 
different. You can't even call them the same thing anymore. So that's kind of interesting for me is hitting that sweet spot where we used to have people read textbooks, do a pre-course test. And then we had three days that combined in-person lectures, activities, and time in the field. And that's been jostled quite a bit. Like, what can we expect students to do ahead of time? What are our accountability methods, making sure that that's happening and that can be included in their total learning um, product? And yeah, what days and concepts should be spent in the field or, or lectured or how do we gauge learning? I feel like, wow, that's, that felt so secure a few years ago, and it feels incredibly <laughs> unsettled right now. Yeah, well, COVID shook every industry up, right, and including education, and and asked us to expand even our technological savvy to <laughs> adapt and overcome, right? And then, like you said, the blended model. But it, it seems like nothing nothing replaces just that good old fashioned field time too for learning, right? Boots on the ground. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, time in the field with instructors, seeing decisions really be made is is the gold. Right. But there's a lot that a student needs to have to be tooled to get things out of that experience. And so... So one yeah. thing I, I tend to hear from students all the time or people entering the backcountry is that they're, um, they struggle to find partners or mentors. What... Um, what parting advice would you have for folks that are just looking to expand their own avalanche knowledge or uh, want to want to further their understanding of snow science? I think people need to balance an education with practical experience. You see folks that are too scared to go into any train at all until they've taken every class, but you're not going to get a lot of class until you have a certain amount of experience. And I know that's a really, that's a really tough thing to balance, but you don't always have to take an, you know, they're all pretty expensive. I mean, we fundraise to keep our courses tuition as low as we can, but I've seen like $800 two-day level one avalanche courses. I mean, you can really herniate money on uh, classes, but there's a lot, there's so much free stuff out there too. And you can, so many avalanche textbooks have been in circulation long enough. You can, they're not expensive in their newest edition, but they're certainly inexpensive on the used book market. There's so many online learning tools. Utah Abbey's done such a great job with their Know Before You Go and e-learning. I'm really impressed with manufacturers, uh, blogging, safety information, creating their own video libraries of instructional material. Um, So, yeah, I think there's a lot of free and paid educational content out there that should supplement um, you going into the mountains with friends and scaling up and down your objectives with the people that you're with and the avalanche danger that you're facing. Yeah. Even listening to lots of Avalanche Hour podcasts, you could learn a lot. (laughs) Oh, yeah, definitely with the podcast. (laughs) Well, thank you, Melis. I want to, um, I really appreciate uh, you coming to the table to discuss Avalanche education and 
mountaineering and climbing rangering and woofer teaching. Um, it's been wonderful to share deeper conversation with you. And I just thank you for taking the time. And I hope you enjoy a very much needed break after a very busy winter season. You too, Brooke. Thanks for your time with me today and everything you do to provide another free learning platform for emerging <laughs> uh, snow athletes. <laughs> Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Wow, what a phenomenal life of adventure and community service Melis has led. I'm grateful for the opportunity to both interview her and work beside her at the Alaska Avalanche School. If you're interested in learning more about AAS, you can head on over to their website at alaskaavalanche.org or give them a follow on Instagram at akavalanchschool. While you're over there, might as well give us a follow too. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Please feel free to send us any feedback or fan mail to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you use. Music for this episode can be found at ketza.uk. Artwork was provided for the Avalanche Hour podcast by Mike T, who you can find at his website, MikeT.com. And a deep gratitude to all you listeners out there and to Caleb Merrill for not only inviting me to guest host once again, but for also doing the hard work of producing this show. Until next time, remember, a lesson delivered isn't a lesson learned until you do it different the next time. Adios. Thank you.